from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Jack McCants. Jack was an ordained Methodist minister when he ran into the Baha'i faith. I started the interview by asking Jack where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. Well, I grew up in, uh, I guess, first uh, to the first four grades of school elementary schools in Central Texas, town Corsicana, Texas, and the rest of my childhood and youth, I grew up in Palestine, Texas, which is in east, eastern Texas, and it's a small town, about maybe 12,000 people at that time. Typical uh, Texas at that time, you know, there was no integration, anything like that as far as race or no, I remember very well, this is when World War One started, and I was just a kid, but I remember very clearly that bright, sunshiny Sunday morning when they announced that, you know, the war had started and bombing of Pearl Harbor and so forth. Then everything turned to focus on war until 45 and the war was over, and after that people began to recover and go about their business. And so I guess it's pretty normal for that time of, of life to grow up there. You spoke of attitudes toward race. What were your parents' attitudes toward race? Oh, typical of that day and that time. We lived on a, a small farm. We had a, I had an African-American man that I grew up with basically from the time I was in third grade on. He moved from uh, Corsicana, Texas, over to Palestine, where we lived the rest of the time. And His name was Sam Watson. He, he was from Henderson, Texas. But uh, he was my closest friend growing up. I had no kids you know, that I played with much way out in the country where I lived, so I hunted and fished with him and did everything with him, so... We had a pretty good relationship. He had a house he lived in on the property there. and uh, So I got used to working with him and everything else growing up. So I guess I had a pretty broad attitude toward uh, African-American people. I didn't know anything about, you know, other races of people in that part of the world because it was just black and white and that was it. But, of course, there was no integration. We used to go to the movies together on Saturdays, and he had to always go up into the, the balcony, and that was... Uh, well, it was at that time, and I was downstairs, and we walked back home together and talk about the movie, usually a cowboy show or something on the weekend. But things were very inexpensive. You know, a hamburger cost a dime, and Coke's a nickel, and so forth. So it didn't cost much, but nobody was making much money anyway before the war. And then during the war, they didn't make much difference either. So mm-hmm. he was gone during a uh, couple of years of war, worked over at Oak Ridge on that project the government had over there because he was a World War One veteran. But he was a very, very close friend of mine. I still say prayers for him every day of my life. He's passed on, but he was a very, I was very close to Sam. When did you become a, sort of aware of the sort of inequality situation with the races there? Well, I was a, I belonged to the Methodist Church, and they were beginning to deal with it when I was in, uh, even in, in uh, junior high school, they were, people were, 
talking about it was unjust. It's that no, there was arguments going on back and forth between the different viewpoints and people in the church and so forth. And then uh, later, when I went to uh, university, then uh, that that problem came to the forefront, and I, I had I became a Methodist, a, a young Methodist <coughs> minister. I was I felt called to preach, and and then got a local preacher's license, and then was ordained as a minister later on. I went to the theology school at Southern Methodist University, Perkins School of Theology, and was ordained as a minister. And, of course, they had already had a few students enter their theology school, and so it was in right on the forefront of that kind of a conflict at that time. So it was uh, lots, lots of different views at that time. I felt like the Methodists were very broad and leading the way with it, because there a lot of people in other church groups, depending on their viewpoints, were quite opposed to it. It was a very, very difficult time of, of life in the southern states. When did you realize you were called to become a minister? Well, I guess I was about 21 years old. I was at a small state university, and the Methodists have a wonderful system in it for that type of thing called the Wesley Foundation, which is a college type of a thing at at universities and, and, and colleges across the country. I was there, and I was also in a very, very supportive, wonderful local Methodist church in Palestine, Texas, and the minister there, a man named H.E. Floyd, was a close friend of mine, and he encouraged me. So, and my family had always been Methodist since the Methodists first came to this country back in the Carolinas and Georgia, so it was easy for me to make that transition. And, uh, you know, they're very, very focused on... Uh, social, economic kind of outlook and, and what they perceive as, as the basis of the gospel. It's not just a matter of a dogma, but the the Good Samaritan type of parable of, of the gospel is very, very strong in the Methodist viewpoint. So I was raised pretty much along that line. In other words, if uh, faith without works is dead type of an attitude. So there's always that type of attitude in my family, my extended family, and my mother's family also. And where was the first place you ministered after you graduated? That's an interesting story, actually. I was drafted into the Army. I had a choice. Uh, the Korean War was raging. I had a choice of going as a, as a chaplain or going as a, as a minister. I could have gone as a first lieutenant as a minister, but I just felt like, you know, they pretty well were a lot of constraints on what chaplains can do or cannot do as far as their viewpoints of the military. The Methodist Church has a system where they, they I don't know what the, the, the system is now, but back in those days they had what they called a 1AO, conscientious objector. And they recognized that and gave you the choice of doing that, or you could you go as just a soldier and fight and so forth. And my viewpoint at that time was pretty much, you know, I, I just didn't believe in, in killing folks because of... Uh, different political viewpoints and so forth without getting into all the basic arguments about that. And since the Methodist Church acknowledged that position, I I took that position and uh, went into the Army under the 1AO business, and they sent me to Fort Sam Houston here in Texas to be trained as a medic. And actually it was at that part, <laughs> that's why I met my first buy was at Fort Sam Houston. Now, I was, I was a, a minister at that time, and of course I was on... Uh, leave because I was in the military, so I was out of that system. But I met my first by a young man named Stephen Soom from uh, up near Madison, Wisconsin, just north of there, I think, was his home, and he gave me 
<coughs> I book, I was not too interested in it at that time, but it, he made a favorable impression on me. And then later, after basic training, they sent some of us over to Carolina for a while to Camp Rutgers, now Fort Rucker. Uh, and I was there for a while being further trained and then was shipped to Korea. Got there at the end of the war and saw a lot of horrible things I had never, ever in my life been exposed to before. And that certainly <laughs> was a big shock for me. And by the time I got out of that, I came back. I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do again. I wasn't sure I wanted to stay in the ministry. There were a lot of Christian people, wonderful people in, in, in South Korea that was a had a fable impression also on me, but uh, it really shook my faith up and made me think about what was the long term, other than just personal salvation, what 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 does religion have to do with bringing peace on this planet? And so when I came back, I thought, well, I, I, I was inclined to be a, I like, all had liked history a lot, so I went to Florida State University to get a master's degree in history. And while I was there, I just felt like, well, you know, this is really not going to be what I'm called to do. I'm going to go back into the ministry. So I went back to and took another Methodist church near Hughes Springs, Texas, a little town in Texas. I had a little little church north of there and one south of there and was going to conclude my, get some graduate training at SMU at, at that theology school to try and resolve some of my differences. But at the end of the one semester there, I knew I just was not cut out to be a minister. And now, they were really kind and supportive to me. I mean, yeah. they were not nasty at all. And there were other men there, young men like myself, who were in school, and several of them, like me, chose to do something else. But they told me, they said, why don't you stay in the dormitory for this coming semester, the spring semester, since the fall semester was over, and you know you don't want to continue being a minister, and help. we'll try and help you, you know, get settled and get you some other avenue of life and it was during that time I took a job working at night at the post office there in Dallas, Texas and met an old friend of mine, Harry Craig was his name, he had been in a tank corps in, in uh, Korea and he was going to a Baha'i fireside so I went to my first uh, Baha'i firesides with him and I guess it was while I was at uh, SMU in the dormitory there that I first had an opportunity to really recognize the the teachings of the Baha'i faith or what I was seeking for in my soul. And that, that summer early in, in June, and I embraced the faith and uh, applied to, you know, you sign a little declaration card, the Baha'is call it, and I did that. And Horace Holly, who was a wonderful saintly man, and uh, man high in the Baha'i faith, the secretary of our national spiritual at that time would not accept my declaration because he knew from what the LSA there had, in Dallas had said, I was a, been an ordained minister, so I had to get a letter from my bishop, a Frank Smith, and, and I did do that, and it was one of the most loving letters I've ever read in my life. He said, you know, if he'd been happy to have had me as an as ordained Methodist preacher, but he just hoped that I'd carefully investigated the, the step I was about to make in case later I had any regrets about becoming a Baha'i, but that his prayers would be with me wherever I would ever be. And so I, that was with that full support that I entered the Baha'i faith. I have, have still have many, many friends in the, in the Methodist tradition. But Baha'i faith met, met my own inner heart's desire as well as my mental searching for some message to bring to the world, to meet the needs of the world today, that 
to bring about world peace, and Baha'i Faith is focused on that subject of world peace and the oneness of humankind. So it really was what I was looking for. It was just a long, hard search for me. So let's go back to why you realized after that second go-round that you couldn't be a minister. Well, I had, I had a lot of problems uh, in Scripture that I was uh, dealing with. Theology school is a very crucial training effort for any young minister, and I think they, they, they really put you to the test to make you think through your, your childhood and your earlier movements and what you're about to do. It's a very taxing problem. It's not an easy uh, university type of experience to go through because you're, you're, and I was having to work. My father had passed away, and I, was, I had five part-time jobs at the time. I was sleeping only every other night. I had a job at a, at doing a night watchman job every other night at a place there, and I was working at, at, at four of the part-time jobs, one of which was having churches, little cup, those two little churches on the weekend that I was pastoring. And uh, so my time was taken day and night working and going to university. And during that process, I just felt like it, the questions I had about Scripture, there's a Baha'i book that's one of the central books that Baha'i used to answer some questions. It was a very famous lady in the early days of the history of Baha'i faith named Laura Barney, who had gone to Haifa, Israel, where Abu Baha was living at the time, and was able to, in, in, in a prison city in Akka, to ask him a lot of questions. And that, that, that book, is the some, some Answered Questions, is the title they gave the book. But in that book, the basic theological questions that I had not been able to answer in my theological search and, and, and every question that I had, basically, that book had answered. <clears throat> and then it exposed me to, to other great religions that I had not had any opportunity to really look at. And there's a very famous early book written by a very famous Christian, uh, former Christian minister, George Townsend, who held a high position in the Baha'i faith later in his life. But he was the canon of the Dublin Cathedral, and he wrote a wonderful book, the title of which was Christ and Baha'u'llah. And that spoke to a lot of the questions that I had, because, you know, you're always concerned about whether a prophet is a real prophet or a false prophet or who he's claimed to be and so forth, if you're a minister particularly. And I had been uh, raised Christian, and I certainly didn't want to be disloyal to the Christ that I knew personally and loved very much. So, of course, I had to resolve that issue for myself, is by Allah who he claims to be, because to me, very simply to put it as, as bluntly as probably as I can, if the root to the tree is dead, I don't care that it's not going to live. It's like a Christmas tree. It looks good for a while and it dies. But Baha'i Faith has borne the test of history and has many, many people who have given their life for it. And in reading the history of a book called Dawnbreakers and the Baha'i Faith, that also was a, a book that helped establish you know, my own roots into the faith and, and to begin to experience for myself as <clears throat> I attended what these little meetings of the Baha'is called firesides where they answered their questions and people's questions and seeking. And I had a lot of questions. I was very fortunate in the early days when I first enrolled in the Baha'i faith because I moved to a community from Texas where I was in Florida. And I was in a community with Curtis Kelsey and his wife, Harriet. Curtis had worked with Abba Baha, who was the central example of the Baha'i teachings, the son of the prophet Baha'u'llah. And he knew him very well, and he was the one that Curtis had, had uh, installed the lights at the famous shrine of the Bob in, in Haifa, Israel, as well as Baal Shrine. 
And so he was there when Abel Pye actually passed away. He was there when Shogi Fendi, the guardian by faith, returned from his schooling at Oxford, England. And so I knew it was what I really needed was the grounding to, of, of talking to people who had known central figures in the Baha'i faith and, and knew a lot more so than the, the young people who were, had embraced the faith in Texas. They didn't know that much. They knew a lot. They knew at least who Baha'u'llah was, but they didn't know as much detailed information as the people I was associated with in my first two years as a Baha'i, and it was a God's gift for me because it enabled me to... to begin to get my roots down and into into my soul as to, as to what my faith was all about and who Baha'u'llah I really was. And You know, you really can't get in touch with God till you learn to commune with the soul of the, of the manifestation of God. No one can. When a Christian asks you, do you know Christ personally, there's a real reason for that. They are communing with the soul of Christ. They know the reality of it. And the same is true for Baha'i. He has to know the reality of who Baha'u'llah is if he's going to Try and live a life because Baha'u'llah calls on you to change every aspect of your life to try and bring to this world the peaceful teachings that are necessary. And that's not easy to do. And it, it's always a test for you because every day there's something new and something difficult. And at least I was given the, the opportunity to explore the Baha'i teaching for, with, with the individuals who are really deep in the faith and knew what they were talking about from personal experience for many, many years. I was very, very, very fortunate in that way. So, Jack, how old were you when you became a Baha'i? 29 years old. So you mentioned that the National Spiritual Assembly, which is the National Governing Council of the Baha'is in the U.S., asked you to write a letter to your bishop because you were formally a minister? Is that what you were saying? I was still an ordained minister okay. at that time. I had not... I had. Uh, Embrace the Baha'i faith, but when I, that semester I had been at, at the uh, theology school at SMU, I was in this transition period. Mm-hmm. I had not formally severed my ties. He wanted me, uh, Horace Holly, who was the secretary of our National Spirit, and wanted that done before they enrolled me into the Baha'i faith, which I think is a very practical, good policy, both for the Methodist system as well as the, the Baha'i faith. And so I was happy to do that, and then I got this extremely loving letter from my bishop and sent that to Horace Holland, and I was enrolled in the faith. I embraced the faith in, in uh, June of 1959. I, I guess he enrolled me formally in September of 59. So basically it was a letter of resignation as... Yes, it was, yeah. and I sent my ordination papers and all in at the time to Bishop Smith, yes, mm-hmm. correct. Now you mentioned that you had specific questions in regards to Scripture that you felt were answered in the Baha'i faith. I was wondering what those questions were and what were the answers that you found when you investigated the Baha'i faith. I hope what I say doesn't offend anyone who is in your listening audience if they hear this, but I had a a very fine professor who had worked with a very famous Paul Tillich, very famous theologian at that time, and Bootman and those people back in the the 50s, and this man had been a professor with him. He was from India, Lucknow College in India, and he had taught a comparative religion class to my class at SMU. He was very strongly opposed to, to, to Muhammad and his teachings. So we had been pretty well brainwashed about Muhammad, so one of the great tests for me was not so much the teachings of the Baha'i faith per se, but the fact that we accepted the, the 
Baha'is accept Muhammad as a prophet of God. And uh, that was a big test for me. So I had to deal with that, and I did deal with it. And then the bigger the bigger issue is, is the Baha'is quote the claims of Baha'u'llah, you know, the, the main central teaching of Christ that many people have a difficult time with. And, and it, it, I, I have a problem myself sometimes with the fact that you know, Baha'is have books about how to teach Christians, and I don't think that's possible because different denominations don't believe the same thing at all. They have different beliefs about uh, resurrection. They have different beliefs about baptism. They have different different beliefs about the basic teachings of Jesus Christ, and that's why you have different denominations. They're not the same. They have different belief systems. And Some people believe that you lay in the grave until you're resurrected and Christ comes, or some people believe the soul goes to God, and on back and forth, and there's all kinds of different belief systems, so it depends on which Christian church denomination you belong to is what you believe about those basic issues. And the Baha'i faith has to try and speak to all of them. Well, my biggest concern was the, the Christian teaching about the return of Christ because he said that you can't have peace on earth until, you, until Christ returns. And Baha'u'llah claims to be the fulfillment of the, of the promise of Christian scripture about the return of Jesus Christ. There's no give or take on that either, is there? He's not. There's no, you're not going to fake that. And so I had to deal with that, and I had to go to the mat with that. But uh, we have a little book now that makes it a lot easier for people from my background. The name of the book is Thief in the Night. It's written by a wonderful man named William Sears. And in it, he takes many of the prophecies of, of, of Christian scripture about the uh, return of Christ and shows how Baha'u'llah fulfills all of those prophecies. But I had to, at that time, that book was not in print. I had to work through that myself. I was very, very fortunate because I was in a group of very extremely loving people who were teaching me the faith. There were only two Persians, uh, you know, high faith come from Iran. There were only two Persian youth in all of Texas at that time. They were up in Dallas, Texas, and they were in a school out and between Dallas and Fort Worth where the University of Texas at Arlington now has a branch. It, uh, it used to be called as Arlington State College. And they were going to school there, and so I was uh, rooming with them, and they didn't, they didn't know much about some of the kind of questions that I had because they came from a different background. So for me, I had to really struggle through it myself. That's a long subject. I can't answer that in, in this type of an interview, but uh, if it had not been for prayer and fasting and praying, I don't think I could have become a Baha'i. I had to have spiritual experience in my own life to discover who Baha'u'llah was, to ground me in my belief in him, because you can interpret the writings of, of the writing of any prophet in many different ways. One of the wonderful, safe havens of the Baha'is is they have an authorized interpretation by the son of the prophet, Abu Baha, whose function was to give you an infallible interpretation of his teachings, and then his grandson carried on that function for at least one more lifetime, 36 years. And so we have the teachings of Baha that can be understood in many different ways uh, that are explained in ways that you can put into test in your own life and find out the truth from yourself and not get lost in just a mishmash of different viewpoints and so forth and still have room enough for your own understanding because every one of us grow in our understanding of spiritual reality every year and every day of our life if we're open to the truth. And hopefully, even as we're passing into the next world, we're open to experiencing the Spirit of God because it's, you know, just your knowledge alone is not going to save your soul. It has to, it has to come from the Holy Spirit.
God and your response to that. And that comes, we believe, from the communion you have with the, with the channel to reach that, which is the manifestation of God. My eyes believe with their wholehearted being that Baha'u'llah is the return of Jesus Christ and the glory of the Father. That's a different subject for a different time, maybe. But if I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be a Baha'i five seconds. So, Jack, what kept you from turning away from the faith when you heard that Baha'is consider Baha'u'llah the spiritual return of Jesus Christ? Well, I was, I, I was, I was seeking. I was, I was really seeking. I wanted to know the truth. You know, I, I've, I've always been of that temperament. You know, I want to know the truth. It's, it's not enough just for a person to make a claim because. I was a minister for a time, and I knew many, many wonderful Christian ministers on every street corner in different churches, and they believed what they believe as much as I believe what I did, but it didn't mean we were all right. It mean they, they they were as right as they as they knew to be, and I guess that's as much as a man can be held responsible for by God. But if God has sent into the world some some one of being to bring about peace on this planet to fulfill the prophecies, not just of, of Jesus' return, but the Lord of hosts for the Jews, and, and on and on the Buddhists have their prophecies, and the Hindus have their prophecies, the Muslims have theirs, Baha'u'llah fulfills all of them. And that's a long search and study. It's not some simple thing if you've been a minister like I had been. I was not some shallow dilettante trying to just play around with Scripture. I wanted to know the truth is Baha'u'llah who he claims to be. And to say to some devout Christian that uh, Christ is, is in the world has returned with a message to establish peace on this planet and to say it with conviction, you've got to know it yourself. You can't just play games with that, and you've got to know what you're talking about. And you can only there's only several ways you can know truth. You can know it from, from empirical evidence. You see the results of the teaching. You can know it from the prompting of the Holy Spirit in your own heart. You can know it from prophecy. And you can know it from, uh, I guess, from the observation of the effect it's had in your own life. And that's, that's the only way you can know truth. And in the end, then we know our understanding is never perfect. Because God, in his essence, as far as Baha'is are concerned, and other religious beliefs, too, is unknowable. You can't know all there is to know about God. All we know about God is what God has revealed through his manifestation. And I did know the reality of God through, through Jesus Christ. And if I did not believe that Baha'u'llah was the return of Jesus Christ and the glory of the Father, as I said earlier, I would not be a Baha'i. But I have experienced it for over 50 years now. I've walked in this pathway. I've seen the truth of it, not just in this country. I lived and worked as Baha'i overseas in many different countries. And I've seen that his power and the grace of God and the mercy of God forgive sinful people and to bring them together and to harmonize them in their relationships regardless of their race or their former belief systems or their backgrounds, their cultures. I've seen it work. <clears throat> I'm not interested in talk. I never have been. I want to see it work and the Baha'i system works. And that's the only thing that counts for me. After you became a Baha'i, Jack, how did the Baha'i faith affect the direction of where you were going in your life? It changed it completely because I had, I had a prepared myself to, you know, to, to be a, a minister, to serve a church, and to serve people in a local community. It broadened, number one, it broadened my my attitude toward the world. It broadened my attitude toward other religious belief systems to where I could see the hand of God has worked through all of them. You know, Baha'is have a wonderful, wonderful belief, if, if you follow not necessarily maybe what some individual Baha'i may say or something, but there are a lot of wonderful people who are in, in the Christian religions and the other religions. 
and our writings say very clearly in many different places that if a, if a minister or a preacher or a rabbi or a priest or whatever function they have in their church, if they practice what, what they preach as far as loving God and loving mankind, that they are the eyes and the ears to the whole world. So they have a very high station in the Baha'i viewpoint. But there is nothing in their, in their prophecies that promises that they will bring world peace. There is in the Baha'i faith. And that, to me, is the greatest need in the world today is world peace. Our world is in a horrible situation. And the Baha'i faith has certain teachings that are the, the light is, is as clear as it could be. I'll just quote a couple of them. But the first little book that Baha'u'llah revealed, he, he said, uh, O son of being, veiled in my immobile being, in the ancient eternity of my essence, I knew my love for thee, hence I created thee, hath engraved on thee my beauty and revealed, hath engraved on thee mine image and revealed to thee my beauty. And then it was, he says, O Son of Spirit, love me, that I may love thee. If thou lovest me not, my love can in no wise reach thee. Well, I think anybody who has ever experienced just the love of another human, you can you can love someone else. <laughs> I remember as a young man, I fell very much in love with a girl, but she didn't love me. And that is the most awful thing in the world. But I can imagine the reality of God in a very limited sense. A human can imagine God's love reaches out to every human he created. And if a man does not recognize him and love him back, then God's love can't reach him. It just can't. So we have a choice to make. We live a brief time on this planet, and uh, if I can find a guidance coming from God, you know, the religions call it the Word of God. Christians do, and Jews do, and Baha'is do. There's reason for that. You and I, all we know about God are our attributes and perfections and qualities and things like that. We know that. From our own experience, if we haven't experienced love, we don't know what it means. You have to experience the reality of these qualities that we experience in each other. But that is like a letter within a word. If you're going to say this individual, say like a Christ or Baha'u'llah is the word of God, it means we're like letters in that word. We're a part of it, but we're not the complete meaning. He is the word. He is the complete meaning of any attribute, virtue, perfection, bounty, or grace of God that you and I can think of. And we find that in his writings, and then we find that in the way he lived his life to give his own life, his own writings, meaning. Baha'u'llah suffered 40 years of of imprisonment and then being cast out of his country and treated horribly by by the individuals of his day and age. And you see how he dealt with it and how he lived his life and gave his life to her. And and then the results of his teachings all over the world. We, We have national communities in over 180 countries in the world now and we were widespread and, and other than the christian religion we're the widest spread religion in the world and it's all happened in my lifetime there were only 12 i think 12 14 uh, nations that had national assemblies when i was uh, in new baha'i i've been able to see and participate in some of this growth and people don't give up what they believe before they find in the baha'i faith the fulfillment of everything they believed in before if they're seeking souls and open to it. But, you know, God doesn't force his, his faith on anybody. It's, it's your own search. It, it, he answers you. You love him. And in turn, he you can feel his love and response. And that's, that's what I've been able to experience in this country and out of this country and all races of people following the teachings of Baha'u'llah. When all said and done, that is what has kept me in the Baha'i faith. I was very fortunate at times when I under great tests at different times from outside of the faith, sometimes within the faith, because they're always egotistical people within a religion and want to try and 
gain some kind of power or something. It never works within the Baha'i faith because their system is designed to keep that from happening. But it's a problem at times, and if you're sincerely trying to follow, always God gives his protection and his guidance and his grace and his mercy and brings you through it. But it's a, it's a growth process. So I think that's what we're all involved in now, particularly as the world is changing so quickly that we live in today. You said you've been outside the country. Can you describe where you've been and what you've done? Yeah, I went to Pioneer Ridge down in the Caribbean. I worked down there briefly and uh, just because doing consultant work in uh, Jamaica and in Puerto Rico and in Virgin Islands. And, and I decided, well, that really, uh, everybody has a place that's sort of like they really, really like climate and culture, have a lot to do with what makes you the happiest. And I wasn't so happy there. And Mr. Sears, I mentioned, who had written this wonderful book, Thief in the Night, invited me to come work with him in Africa. And I went to live with him and his wife, Marguerite, in uh, Nairobi in Kenya. And was there for a while, but Sears became ill and had to come back to the States. So I returned here and was at that time I was able to be elected to this national body, the Baha'i Faith. And, and after that, I wanted to, Baha'is call it pioneer, and it's the same kind of a function that Christians have sending a missionary, except Baha'is have to get a job and support themselves. They, they can't, they're not, not supported normally by, by a church system uh, where you have to be a part of the working community that you're going to, or else you have to have enough funds to support yourself. So I wanted to pioneer. I went to the Pacific Ocean. I went to Guam. was in Guam for a while, and then was got a very good position and enabled me to travel the Pacific to be the director of the regional program for the regional medical program at the University of Hawaii, and I traveled through many islands and island nations in the Pacific and was there for some time, working out through the islands of the Pacific, then lived and worked a couple of years or a little longer down in Samoa, western Samoa, was secretary of the National Assembly there for a while. And then after that, I came back and, and uh, went to the Philippines and pioneered for a while in the Philippines. And the Philippines were just utterly a wonderful experience because this is the most receptive place I've ever been to the Baha'i teaching with the Philippines. The people were so open to it. And they were clean, hard-working people, and they really studied the, the faith. And uh, I was almost killed. They were having a communist uprising there called the New People's Army trying to... I like they got shot one night. It was a very different thing, but the Baha'is stuck together. They got involved in no political kinds of issues. They just tried to bring peace and harmony among people, and the faith began to spread but eventually the government asked me to leave because they were afraid I was going to be killed, and I left. I was obedient to whatever the government wanted. It was a very wonderful experience for me. The, the pioneer part of my life was a total of almost eight, a little over eight, eight and a half years. And it was a wonderful experience because I was able to travel and worked in countries off and on. I was in and out of Japan and Taiwan and places like that as long as those other Pacific Island nations. I just really enjoyed every bit of it. I love the people, and uh, they seemed to like me okay. And I like that they were not in the islands; they were not so time-consuming like it is in a culture like we live in here. You could sit up and talk about what you thought about, and pray, and share your religion half the night with people. People were interested and wanted to know about it, and it was a, it was a thrilling experience for me. I, I miss it even still because it was such a wonderful, happy time. Now, you said earlier that the Baha'i faith works. Can you 
expand on what you meant by that? Yeah, I think uh, it's easy to talk religion. It's not hard to uh, it's not hard to be religious in the sense that you're just going to talk something. But if you're trying to bring about healing of races of people in the world today, if you back off and look at the world today, you see the people are, are, are fighting between uh, they're down on the Islamic religion and uh, they're down on racist problems. And you see that in our country and other countries. The Baha'i faith brings together black, white, brown, red, and yellow. And they, 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 their basic teaching is God is only interested in the heart of a human, not his color and not his culture. But those things are real, and we all experience those things in our life. And they also have class prejudices, and we have nationalistic prejudices and political prejudices. And to overcome that, I can go. I worked in the field of mental health a number of years as an administrator, and I had wonderful therapists working for me, and they could go so far in explaining stuff. But it takes more than that. I can have a knowledge of something that won't change my feeling about something. It takes more than that to change a human being. And Baha'u'llah has given us, just in his prayers alone, and for instance, if I was a Christian, you know, we have the wonderful Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the prayer goes on, but that's all the Christians have to tell you. We have, as Baha'is, prayers revealed by Baha'u'llah for every human need in the world. And that you are able to draw on the Holy Spirit of God to change your feelings about problems that you're faced with, whether it be race prejudice or political prejudice or nationalistic prejudice, to where this, this basic Baha'i teaching, which is the oneness of humankind, you can put into effect in your life. It's not just an intellectual belief system that you've got. It is a, it, it, your belief system is fortified the Holy Spirit of the living God and, and having these prayers to draw on is like turning a huge magnifying glass toward the sun to bring all that heat to set your own soul on fire with the love of God. And you can't do it without it. You just can't do it. And so I think God has given man the, the means to enable him to implement these wonderful teachings in a way to the degree that's never been given before not because of the former prophets didn't give what was necessary for their time. But people are far more capable now of understanding and following these, these, these teachings that were in earlier times in history. The time even when Christ came, the American continent had not even been discovered. These teachings we have from Baha'u'llah today are designed to bring the same living Spirit of God to every human need and to every human being that God has created on this planet today so that we can live together in harmony and unity and not just talk about it. It's not just some, some little political time for a thing that people are talking about. It's not going to work. You've got to have a power to implement it, and Baha'u'llah has given us that. Now, you said the Baha'i system protects from egotistical people. Can you expound on that? You know, we all have egos, and they can get out of control. We all have difficulties with our own selves. I think it's one reason that most religions have always said, you know, all, all humankind are sinners in that degree. One of the great statements of Baha'u'llah is that God's mercy outweighs his wrath. If it were not for God's mercy, if he was just going to act on his justice, he would destroy every human on this planet because there's no such thing as a perfect human. But because he's merciful, he overlooks it and brings about what he wants in the human race, slowly but surely. And in the Baha'i system, he has given us 
through Baha'u'llah a system to bring about harmony among people in some system we call a simple American word for it is consultation. But we don't have one leader, one minister that is to try and explain the meaning of the Word of God to anyone. We have each local assembly is an elected democratic election of the local believers to elect nine people in a local community to manage all the affairs of high faith in that community, both male and female, anyone 21 years old and older can be elected to a local assembly. Well, in that process, for instance, if I'm not very strong, I'm, very, I'm a very empirical evidence type of guy, or you're a very rational guy, just logic, the next guy over there that say that woman there is very deep in prophecy, and the, another person very sort of a mystic, just prompted in the Holy Spirit, none of them are going to find all the truth on them because all of them can be fooled. But when you bounce nine people together, you're going to have somebody on that assembly that's strong in one of those ways of truth. And the time you're working in any issue you've got to resolve, whether it be a personal issue or whether it is some issue involving spreading the teachings or bringing some some healing type of uh, service to the local community, everyone will be making their input, and they'll be looking at it from a different angle. And when you're seeking for truth, the more light you can have sun on any issue, then you're going I think, and Baha'is believe you come closer to the truth, and you, and you act on that, and then everybody follows that decision because they participated in it and they've had their input in it, and then basically that is in line with the, with the Baha'i writing, the Baha'i teachings, and, and what we believe. Then we act on that. Well, in that case, you're not just got one person telling people what to think or what to do. Everybody's involved in it, and it brings about a peace much better than just just one person trying to run the whole show. You were talking about your time in the Pacific, and you said that you were the regional medical a regional medical program director. Yes, I was. Now, how was it from being a previously an ordained minister that you then became a regional medical program director in the Pacific? Good question. Good question. I, I went back to school to prepare for it. I went to the University of North Carolina to get graduate education in that field, and I did, and I never pioneered until I got that because I wanted to get a good job and to be able to travel, and, and I got a good position because of it. And uh, after getting that graduate education in that field, and uh, I was able to get a good job in it, and that's, that's what I did. The Philippines is a very Catholic country. I'm surprised it was open to the Baha'i faith. Well, it's uh, you know that's a misnomer. It is a Catholic country in a way. In fact, <laughs> and, and this I don't mean to again harm anybody's viewpoint, but but the head individual of, of the Catholic Church, while well, there was a Cardinal Sin, I used to, used to laugh about. He had a bad name for that function, but he was a wonderful man. He was the head of their religion, but it's really no stronger there in many ways than another local church, which you don't hear about much here, called, the church is called Ecclesio Cristo, which is uh, uh, their version of the Church of Christ. Not the same one that we have in this nation, but it is very strong there. They have many huge cathedrals, thousands and thousands of believers, so that's also a very strong church. So those are the two basic church systems that are in effect there, however... You know, they speak many different languages in the Philippines. They, they talk about the, the national language of Tagalog, but that's only because uh, one of the rulers of the country wanted to make that the business language for the whole nation. But when you're up the northern part of the country, in, in Luzon, or you're down in the middle part in the Visayan area and further down 
those islands down. They speak different languages. And when you travel 50, 60, 70 miles with, a, with a, maybe two or three other Baha'is going to teach, they would have been raised in the Philippines and they can't speak the language of that. People call it different dialects. It's more than dialects. It's different languages. So when you're going there and you have those experiences and you find uh, the difference in, in attitudes, uh, you're, you're talking to lots of different people that are under the name Filipino, yes, but their cultures sometimes are quite different than they are in other parts of the country. For instance, I say this in a joking way, but it's a serious way. In this in this country, like I live in Texas now, I go out here on the highway, I'll pass a huge truck loaded with crates of chickens or ducks going to the market. Sometimes you'll pass a carload of, of cattle or something going to market. Well, in the in the northern island of Luzon, you'll pass huge trucks loaded down with crates of dogs going to market because they eat dogs up there. Now, the rest of the country laugh at those people that do that, but those people eat, eat dogs. And if you're, if you're pioneering in that part of the country, like I was, I was in Luzon a lot, and you're out in some villages or something, you're going to be an honored guest or something in a small little uh, community or something. They might have a lot of different foods available. They'll have fish. They'll have birds. They have a bird a lot like our quail. They have wonderful fish. They have carabao, they have beef, they have pork, but they're going. To, the main dish is kelowin up there, and they will have have barbecued it on a skewer, you know, and they they marinate it overnight with coconut milk that they squeeze the coconut. It's not the water, the milk of it. They marinate that dog meat overnight and put it on a skewer the next day with tomatoes and peppers and stuff, and you're served that. If you don't eat it, it's, it's insulting. And you know, I, I joke about. It. <laughs> you tell people to you. Know, I've ate so many dogs, I bark in my sleep. <laughs> it was just a way of making them, but I actually I got to where I liked it. It wasn't bad eating at all, but it's horrible in another way in the culture I come from. But that's their culture. But it's not the culture of the rest of the Philippines. When you go to their other places, you eat different languages. And as a Baha'i, if you're a travel teacher, they call it, uh, you're trying to express the faith, you don't insult people by what they eat and, and the way they sleep. You sleep on the floor. Everybody sleeps on the floor. I slept on the floor for eight years out in that part of the world. And you get used to it. You have to have mosquito nets over you because they've got them big as helicopters out there. It's just, uh, but they are wonderful people. And when you sit down and talk with them, you're not talking to shallow-minded people. You're talking about people who really dig deep into the Baha'i teachings and want to know what it is. And the only thing that we could find that they 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 love these big meetings where they get together and fiestas that the, everybody has their only family fiestas and we'd have these big Baha'i fiestas and bring people together and they would have they'd be you have a there's some prayers for naming of children they would name their children at these places and all and bring all these people together that are, you know I like personally everybody has their own personal taste I like I like flowers I'm a gardener by hobby. And I like fishing. There are big fishermen out there. And I like dancing. I like music. Well, they're all into big dancing, music, and flowers and things. That's their way. So I fit very well out there. It was a wonderful time for me. And you could sit and talk with people about the glory of God, about the prophecies if you wanted to, the spiritual teachings of the Baha'i faith, and the main teachings about oneness of mankind and harmony between men and women and on and on the basic Baha'i teaching that we talk about. But it was more than a matter of just talking principle. We're talking about people who are really living and trying to practice that religion. And so the Baha'i faith has spread very rapidly there. Now, you said you were personally threatened in the Philippines. Can you explain what the situation was? Yeah, they had a group of 
communist uh, people during trying at that time called the New People's Army, trying to overthrow the government of the Philippines. We were trying to reach people high as living in the Northern Island of Luzon, where some of those people were quite strong. And I was riding with three other Baha'is in a Jeep one night, and then a guy standing right in the middle of the road. We knew it was a dangerous area under the control of those people, and they shot at us, almost got us, didn't get us. Later on, a good friend of mine who was living in that area, Baha'i, he was killed by those people. I don't think they're a threat anymore to the government, but that was back in those days. At that time, they were, and of course, Baha'is are forbidden to get involved in any kind of political conflict, so we were just trying to be peacemakers, but they didn't want peacemakers, because we were bringing something stronger to meet the needs of the people in our teachings than what they were trying to talk about. They they uh, had their own political belief system. We weren't reaching it from that standpoint, so many of the Baha'is suffered a lot, but I never knew, I never knew one Baha'i, as God is my witness, I never knew one Baha'i to give in to the pressure that they put them under to run messages for them at night or to give them money or something else. They just didn't do it. They didn't get involved in it, and some suffered from it. But at the same time, Baha'u'llah's writings that they were trying to be obedient to, they were obedient to, and they were to withstand it. And when other people began to see that they had the, the spiritual strength to withstand that, they began to turn to the Baha'i faith. It was a source of, of victory for the faith rather than, than disaster. So this group was actually targeting against the Baha'is? They targeted anybody that, did, that was uh, opposed to their viewpoint. I don't care who it was. In fact, there was one woman that was doing most of the killing. They, they'd capture people and kidnap them, and she would kill them. They circulated all that information around. It was on the island of Luzon way back then. And it was a, really it was a terrifying time. I'm sort of making light of it in my comments, but it was nothing to be light about. It was scary, man. There's no joke to it because there were a lot of people lost their life at that time. And it was very difficult for the, the government to regain control and to try and establish some system of, of uh, justice up in that part of the country. But eventually, you know, I had to leave. I don't know how, eventually how they resolved the issues, the very issues, different issues there now. But one of the Baha'i faiths, you know, Baha'u'llah in his writings said, the most beloved of all things in the sight of God is justice. Set your eye upon it, you know. But if a person thinks about that, you don't see much justice anywhere in the world today because privileged interests, whether whatever country you're in, they usually sort of gain the upper hand in the way it's administered around the world. Whereas Baha'is are to bring peace on this planet, you've got to have justice. So the Baha'i system is built on establishing a system of values, the universal values that can establish justice throughout the world. That's what we're all about. There's no such thing as a system of universal values to do that now without the Baha'i faith. That is what the Baha'i faith brings to this world, and that's what's been the whole purpose of my life since I've become a Baha'i, to try and establish a way of, of recognizing who Baha'u'llah is, what he's brought to the world to bring peace and happiness to all people, and respect for government in every country that you live in. So was it felt that your presence there was exacerbating the situation, and that's why... You yes, it was. Yeah. Not just mine, but the, the local Baha'is who were with me. It was exacerbating the situation mm-hmm. because we were, we were confronting people who were trying to overrun the local system of government. In fact, I had a, there was a man, a very well-known man, who had been a captain in the military in the Philippines. His name was Borromeo. He's been dead quite a while now, but he told me at night. He said, Jack, you be careful who you talk with in the daytime because you don't know who. In these small villages, it may be a mayor, it may be a some person in high position, he may be deeply involved with the, these uh, 
New People's Army Communist Group at night. You don't know who you're talking with. You had to be very, very careful who you're talking with. And we had to be obedient to that because it was dangerous. But we were not there to try and some kind of political class. We were, we were there to try and bring the local residents' attention to what God has sent into this world, and that is Baha'u'llah with the teachings to establish universal peace on this planet. And that's what we are all about. It's not just for the individual. It's to bring peace between nations. So the local Baha'is were also laying low during this time? They weren't laying low. I don't want to give you no, they weren't. They were just very wise about what they went about doing. They just didn't go out and thumb in their nose in people's faces. They're very mm-hmm. careful about it. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't you don't offer, if a man's cup is full, you don't try and pour more water into it. And they were very, very astute to the fact they were seeking souls that were seeking truth. They weren't just looking out there to push some philosophy. But your presence sort of attracted attention because you were not a local... No, exactly. In fact, I was the only guy there that was not. Everybody else was local. At least local, they were Filipinos in, my, mm-hmm. in that area, but I was it. And I mean, you know, they don't call you an American, but they call you European because you're white. And a lot of people there had not even been around white people before. I was a white guy, so I was an interesting specimen, you know, so <laughs> to speak. But they're wonderful people. You can't help but love Filipinos if you live with them. When did you stop traveling overseas or living overseas? I came back to this country because I was married and had small children. Had to come back here where they could go to school, so I came back here. And when I came back, I had served briefly here in this country as a member of the American National Spiritual Seminary in the late 60s, and then I pioneered in 71. And so when I came back, I was again enrolled as a buyer in this community and began came involved in this community and was elected again to this National Spiritual Assembly and served many years on it. It was resigned just a few years ago because I'm almost 80 years old. I'll be 80 in, in January. I can't do that kind of travel that I used to do and that kind of work. But the process of my life has been just meeting one wonderful, wonderful person after another, man and women all over the world, that I've been able to do in my travels and my work. Anybody who has an opportunity to be a Baha'i is the luckiest person on the planet Earth because it opens their heart to experiences they just can't have any other way. You can't have it any other way. You can have pieces of it and parts of it and glimpses of it, but if you want to just drink from the fountain day or night, you just got to be a Baha'i. What are you doing now these days, Jack? Well, I'm retired. I, I do a lot of uh, local stuff here, around here. Now and then I go to make make talks. Unfortunately for me, I lost a very, very close friend of mine, Dan Seals, who was a you know, a country western singer, but he, I was very close to him. It was hard for me to lose Dan this year. We had traveled together in some places. And, uh, everybody, you know, they're going through different stages in their own life. And one of the fun things that you're not used to prepared for is you get older, people that you have known all your life, you, you're starting to lose them because they're passing on in the next world. And so... Lots of my friends have been dying. I've been going to a lot of funerals recently. It's sort of a negative way of putting it away, but in a way it's not. It's there in the next world and happier in that realm, and it's, it's all right. Their life was fulfilled in this world. But uh, in Texas here, he's a Texas boy. And, uh, in fact, I had an experience with Dan I never had with anyone else. We were down in Brownsville, Matamoros, and on the Mexican side, and Mac Island, down in that area, and went to a lot of different high schools and stuff. Dan was giving, you know, free concerts, and they passed out pamphlets to buy meetings he was going to be speaking at. 
and not one panther was ever thrown on the ground. I never saw that anywhere else. But the hand seals had one quality, other than a few individuals that I've known the high and the face. I never knew anybody like Dan. He was the most humble man I've ever worked with in my life. Dan was the most humble human I ever traveled with. He was he was not an egotistical guy at all. He was sweet. He had a wife that just supported him to the hilt from a different background, Jewish background, live over there near Nashville. But he was a great loss to, to, to our community because he brought such a sweet spirit. It was a wonderful experience to, get, to have been able to travel with him to get to know him as well as I did. Now, for the benefit of our listeners, I guess Dan Seals is most noted for his collaboration in the group England, Dan, and John Ford Coley. Yeah, well, he was in the early part of his career, but it's, uh, in the later part of his career, he had a lot of top records himself on his own, just, just him, him himself and alone. So it was, he had a long, happy career, has a wonderful family, and uh, so I, I know that he, he must be happy in the next life if what we as Baha'is believe is true. He certainly has a great reward in the next world. Well, Jack, I want to thank you for your perspective and you sharing your story with us. Well, I'm glad I can say a little bit. At least for me, it's been my life, and it's been a life of fulfillment and happiness. And if I see my old Bishop A. Frank Smith in the next world, I could tell him that his prayers must have been very effective because I found the right religion for me. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jack McCants, a former Methodist minister who discovered the Baha'i faith as a young man and devoted his life to it ever since. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.